Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. That's Psalm 128, which along with Psalms 129 and 130 are the Psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, October the 5th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the prophecy of Micah today in chapter 2, the first 13 verses in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 18 to 35, and in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 23, verses 23 to 35. So, Micah, remember, yesterday had prophesied against uh, the northern kingdom, primarily Samaria, but ended with an ominous note that this same sin has now come to the gate of Jerusalem. So, he doesn't quite write off Samaria in that first uh, chapter, but but he pretty much does. He says, you know, your, your days are done. Judgment's coming. It's going to be completely ruined. Um, but I'm suffering with you. And then tells us that it's come to the gate of this sin, has come to the gate of Jerusalem. He goes on to say, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. So you can see this the picture of this, someone lying in their bed, um, working out schemes and plots of wickedness. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They have the ability to do it. So it, these are not, you know, kind of low-level people who are, who are coming up with ideas about how to uh, cheat people and do wicked things. No, it's something they are capable of doing. They have the full capacity to carry out their plans. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. And remember, not too long ago, in, in another prophecy, it, we were told about somebody who moves a boundary stone. That's exactly the idea. It's a taking by government of another person's property without their consent. So it's a moving of a boundary stone. It's being dishonest about where boundaries are. But we all see from time to time government will take property by eminent domain because it can at law. Now, our law requires people to be compensated for the taking of land. But it won't stop the taking. <laughs> that's not going to hold things up. I mean, that's the reason that, that there have been things like the Little Tennessee River, for instance, which couldn't be dammed because of the snail darter, uh, that, which is a, an endangered species of fish. Now, that, that is one way to stop a taking. It's a very difficult thing to do economically. If you own private property, you own it at, sort of at the will or the grace of the municipality. And so here, what we're seeing is, though, is, is that Micah says they're taking people's property away from them, and he must be talking about the leaders because they're the only ones who could. <clears throat> Therefore, because they've done these things, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. So, so it, it, it seems pretty clear that Micah's got some specific people in mind. Against this family, they devised wickedness, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. In other words, you have the capacity to do the wickedness you want. You do not have the capacity to avoid the judgment and the disaster that's going to befall you. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In other words, you're going to be brought low. 
in that day they shall take up a taut song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portions of my people, and he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. It's a weak sauce argument. Because what he's saying is, you have stolen these properties from these people. You've devised wickedness on your bed. You've carried it out because you had the capacity to do so. And now I'm going to do the same to you. I'm going to take what you've stolen and I'm giving it to others. Essentially, they're complaining that God's justice in taking the land they've unjustly taken and giving it to others, they're complaining that God is unjust by taking away what they gained by injustice. Therefore, he says, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. And what he's saying is, is is that when I take it, it's permanent. This casting the line by lot refers to the original distribution of the land in the time of Joshua. That's exactly how it was done. It was done by lot. So one tribe would get this property by lot, and then by lot that tribe would divide up pieces of the property that the tribe itself owned to the families. And so here what he says is, is, is that not only am I taking this away from you, I'm taking it away from you permanently. You will lack anyone to lay claim to these lands at any point in the future. So it's not just that I'm taking it away from you, but it's, it's that your lines are going to perish. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. In other words, they're saying, shut up, Micah. You don't know what you're talking about. You're out of your mind. In saying these things, should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by, trusting with no, with no thought of war. In other words, you're lying in wait to do these things. You're not declaring your intentions. You're doing it under cover of darkness, essentially. The women of my people, you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children. You take away my splendor forever. They're abusing widows and orphans. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. In other words, this is a grievous thing to me. It's not just a slightly bad thing. It's a horrible thing. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a preacher for this people. In other words, anybody who preaches nonsense is exactly the kind of preacher these people want. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I'll set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He says, ultimately, I'm going to gather these people. I'm going to gather a remnant of those who who still are around God, because God doesn't forsake his covenant, nor does he completely forsake his covenant people. He has a covenant relationship with them, and therefore, ultimately, he will bless them. But he's not he's not bound to bless sinners. The, the wicked will not go unpunished, is exactly what he says in, um, in his self-revelation in Exodus 34. He who opens the breach goes up before them. The one who opens the breach is clearly a messianic figure. And remember that Hosea, or not Hosea, Micah is prophesying at the same time as Isaiah, and he sees this same messianic figure, this one who opens the breach. 
who, who breaks through, goes up before them. They break through and pass the gates going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And so it's a man who does this, and the disappointment of much of the Jews and the rejection by the Jews is partially due to the fact that Jesus doesn't fit that kingly, messianic role of, of restoring the kingdom to Israel, defeating the Romans, driving them out, and then giving everything back to its rightful owners, the people of God, the covenant people of God. And so he's rejected largely because he doesn't do those things. So in the gospel today, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So what are these things? Okay, so what yesterday's lesson, remember, Jesus healed the servant of the centurion without ever seeing either the servant or the centurion. He healed him from a distance. And then the uh, raising to life of the son of the widow in Nain. So these things are reported to, G- to John by John's disciples. John's in prison. And John, calling two of his disciples, said to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Now this is, a, is an interesting passage for multiple reasons. John saw the sign. He saw the sign that he had been promised, that the dove would come and it would remain on the one whom God had chosen. And he heard the voice from heaven declaring, this is my son, beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So he hears all of this. He sees all of this. Now he's in prison. His situation doesn't seem right to him. So what does he do? So he sends these two disciples. Now, the question becomes... And it's a question that's answered two different ways. Is, is, is John in doubt about Jesus? So modern commentators psychologize and say, yes, that's exactly what's going on. John's basically lost his faith. He can't reconcile his situation with what he believes. And so he sends these disciples to ask the question, are you him? And he, and he wants a straightforward answer to his question. The ancient commentaries to a man, and literally just men back in those days, talking about the first few centuries of the church, the people that they refer to as the church fathers, to, to, to a single man, every one of them says no. No. John's not wavering. He has no doubt. He sent the disciples to him so they would know who Jesus was. They would know for a fact. So here's what happens. The men came to him. They said, John the Baptist sent us to you saying, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So Jesus' answer was a demonstration. So they said, are you the one who's to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus did all the things that Isaiah promised he would do, except for one, setting the prisoners free. So they're, they're not going to get the thing that they want, which is to set John free. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard, how the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me, because I didn't do what he needed. So it's got to be faith. It's got to come down to faith. If he doesn't do the thing you, quote, need him to do, want him to do, will you still believe? And that's the, the, the incredible thing about Paul, and I believe also about John the Baptist. By the way, I believe in the ancient commentators are right. And, and here's why. 
when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? You know, a guy who's, who's just kind of blowing to and fro? Who, who, who is um, sort of uh, a people pleaser? No, obviously not, is the answer. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothing, soft clothing. Well, obviously not. He wore rough camel's hair clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So, So Jesus is quoting and pointing to this Old Testament prophetic figure who will come prior to Messiah. Later, he will tell his disciples, I tell you that Elijah has already come. That's based on Malachi's prophecy that Elijah would come prior to the coming of Messiah. So Jesus says he's already come, and John is the fulfillment of this figure from the Old Testament prophets who will come as the forerunner of Messiah. Well, that's the reason I believe that the ancient commentators are exactly right. John may have wondered but was John living in doubt? No. What, what was John doing? John always pointed people to Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, did John get some things wrong? Yes, because he thought Jesus was coming in judgment. And that's not what happened. He will, but that's not what happened because there's two horizons there. And John failed to see the distinction between those two horizons. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Everybody who has come before culminates in John. He's the greatest who have ever been before. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, because John hasn't been born of the Spirit. John doesn't have the full expression, the full knowledge of the gospel. And the proof is, he got wrong what the role of Jesus was. So he didn't see that. He didn't have the fullness of the message, nor did he have the fullness of the Spirit. He was born of women, and none of those was greater than John, but he didn't have the full measure of the Spirit because Jesus had not ascended, and the Spirit couldn't be fully fully poured out. So Jesus says, what you've got, as great as John is, nobody ever before him compares to him, including Moses and Elijah. But the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. That's you. That is you. So what's the message then? Stand firm on what you believe because you don't just believe it, you know it. By the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you know these things are true. You can stand in these things, just like John did, but even stronger. John wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. No, you shouldn't be either, is what Jesus is saying in this. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They weren't prepared for the coming of Messiah. They had not taken the time to prepare. They didn't think they needed to, and they thought John was a nut job. They were the ones to whom God spoke, just as those leaders did in the day of Micah. He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. 
The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, you, you think you're calling the tune. You can play the flute, and we didn't dance. You can play a dirge, and we didn't weep. You're not calling the tune. And the reason you're not calling the tune is because you don't see truthfully. You judge by wrong judgments. You judge by somebody eating bread and drinking no wine, or you judge by eating and drinking. You're judging by false standards. And you don't get to call the tune. You don't have the power and the authority you think you have. is exactly the same message that God sent to the leaders of Micah's time in saying, hey, you, you won't be able to escape my judgment. You, you have the capacity to do the stuff that you're doing. You don't have the capacity to avoid me. I can promise you that. I'm bigger than you, stronger than you, more powerful than you. And, and I'm more righteous. And, and my justice is true justice. So uh, Paul, uh, and that's something we need to always keep in mind, is, is that ultimate accountability to a power that's greater than we are should restrain our conduct. It should always inform the way we live our lives. So um, the Tribune, remember, called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, at 9 o'clock tonight, you guys are going to take him out of here. And also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, that's the Tribune, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Not exactly the truth. He, he pulled him out because he didn't know what was going on. He was getting ready to have him beaten and then found out he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I didn't know what was going on. This is a Jewish thing. He said, I found he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me there should be a plot against him, uh, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So I sent him to you because they were trying to kill him here. So I sent him down there for safekeeping, but, but the accusers are also going to come down. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. So they, they get him part of the way there, and then the soldiers come back, but they leave the horsemen with him. And they, on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with Paul. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. He was in the jurisdiction of Felix, who is the governor, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So he's keeping him safe. So who is this Felix? I want to give you a little bit of exposition on who this man is. So Felix was a former slave from Cilicia. His brother became a favorite of the emperor. Along the way, he became a freedman, which means he was no longer a slave. And, and he interceded before the emperor for his brother Felix. And so Felix then gets his freedom from slavery. He's from the same area Paul is. Paul, remember, is a freeborn Roman citizen. 
um, Felix, the governor, the man who has authority over Paul, and this whole these all these these three readings have a lot to do with authority and who's under what authority. Just like the centurion said yesterday, he was a man under authority, but he understood authority because he also had authority. So here, this governor is a former slave from the same place Paul was from. Paul was a freed Roman, a free Roman citizen by birth. Felix is given his Roman citizenship and his position of authority by the emperor because his brother became one of his favorites. And not only did he do that, he was a horrible, horrible man. He was open to accepting bribes. We hear that from here. From historical documents, what we know is he had the high priest murdered in A.D. 58. And that high priest, why did he have him murdered? Because he spoke against him about the way that he governed over Judea. Now, he has to be recalled from Judea because he's such a bad governor. But Jonathan, the high priest, spoke against Felix on a regular basis because of the way in which he governed, because he was ruthless. He governed like a slave. He had a slave mentality was what was said of him. So he's constantly threatened by everybody around him. So he has the high priest murdered. He goes to one of the high priest's friends and says, I want you to set him up in a temple. And, and men with daggers came and they stabbed him to death and killed him. But he was betrayed by his best friend. So he had the high priest murdered, and the high priest, Jonathan, had been one of the ones who advocated for him to be the governor. But then he turned on him. You know, it, it's, it's a very wicked thing. And, and to make it more so, Herod Agrippa, who horrible guy, Jew, one who killed the babies when Jesus was born because he was afraid the king had been raised up. So Herod Agrippa had a daughter. Her name was Drusilla. She was married to another man. Felix saw her, found her beautiful, said, I want her. Sent another man, Simon, who was a magician. He was a Samaritan, so it's not Simon Magus. He goes, and he convinces Drusilla to leave her husband and marry him. And she's willing to do it in order to get away from her sister who mistreated her because she was more beautiful than she was. It's like Cinderella, right? So she mistreated her. Who is that? Her name is Bernice. We're going to meet her soon as well. So Drusilla who had married her first husband on the promise that he gets circumcised because she's Jewish, leaves him as a Jewish woman, divorces her husband, which she's not able to do. Only the husband can initiate that in Judaism, particularly at that time. So she leaves and she goes to Felix, which means happy. So Drusilla and Mr. Happy are the ones who are governing down in this part around Caesarea at this time. Wicked man. Wicked, wicked man, but knows about the Jews. And Drusilla knows about the Jews because, well, she are one. So we're going to see these characters play out. And, and all these people have these interrelationships. So Bernice and Drusilla, Dr- Bernice is Herod's consort, sister. And then Drusilla is the sister of um, Bernice, who is now married illicitly, essentially, to Felix. So these are the players that we're going to encounter over the next couple of days. All this comes down to authority, and where does your authority come from, and are you under ultimate authority? Questions we have to answer every single day of our lives.